Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, this week we begin our Christmas series, Christmas from the Beginning of Time. So let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Well, the Christmas season, with all its joys and celebration, is upon us. Today, to help us celebrate, I'm calling this series Christmas from the Beginning of Time. Now, in essence, this series will trace the messianic expectations through the Old Testament, starting with Genesis 3, the incident immediately after the fall into sin. And so from that perspective, Christianity is not a 2,000-year-old religion. It is that historic faith rooted in the promise of God that sin and its consequences will be overcome. Christmas from the beginning of time. So let me start at the beginning. We're going to start this study, strangely enough, in the New Testament and not at the place of the birth of Jesus, but at the very end of the gospel accounts. In Luke 24, Jesus has just risen from the dead, but his disciples don't yet know it. Two of them are walking along a road going to a village called Emmaus, which is just a little over 10 kilometers from Jerusalem. Suddenly, Jesus is with them, but they don't recognize him, and they engage in a conversation. These two disciples have heard that the tomb was empty, but they're not sure what that means, and they don't think it means that he's risen from the dead. So I'm reading Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Just so we understand, in Jesus' day, it was very common to speak of the Jewish Bible, the 39 books that we now commonly call the Old Testament, as the Law and the Prophets. The law, as believed by Jesus and all the rabbis of his day, was written exclusively by Moses. The prophets included everything else that is the other 34 books. So put it into terms that I understand, after his resurrection, meeting with the two disciples, he opens the Old Testament, and starting with Genesis all the way through Malachi, he explained how all of that, when properly interpreted, speaks of him. You know, it's often been said, you know, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to hear that study of the Old Testament. I wonder what Jesus taught. Did he start in Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head and then go to Genesis 12.3 about the seed of Abraham blessing the whole world and then perhaps Genesis 49 verse 10 where the king's ruling staff would never depart from the tribe of Judah and then perhaps Exodus 12 with the Passover lamb and and perhaps Leviticus 16 with the Day of Atonement, and then 2 Samuel 7 with the son of David ruling the world, or Isaiah 9, and then maybe Isaiah 53 with the suffering servant, or perhaps Psalm 2 or Psalm 89 and Psalm 110. How about Jeremiah 31 and Malachi chapter 3? Well, the list just goes on and on. I wonder how long he instructed them. How detailed was his approach? But, and this is fascinating, This is not the only time that Jesus spoke this way about the First Testament. I mean, consider his debate with the Pharisees recorded in John 5.39. You search the Scriptures, that is the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. See, Jesus thought that if you understood the First Testament rightly, 
that is the first 39 books of our Bible, you would find it testifying or bearing witness about his person, his life, his ministry, about the grace of forgiveness and eternal life. He thought that the First Testament gave witness about himself and about God entering into the world. Okay, that's the starting point for this series, but before we move on, let's step back for a moment and consider. See, let's face it. There are a great many Christians that have a problem with the Old Testament. A number of years ago, I took a summer to preach through the Ten Commandments. You know, I found some people who were upset. They said, I should be preaching the New Testament. After all, teaching the Old Testament, they said, is teaching law and works, whereas teaching the New Testament is about grace. So let me ask this question. If the law or the Ten Commandments have been done away with, is it now okay to commit adultery, yes or no? Is it okay to worship idols, take the name of the Lord in vain? Is it okay to dishonor your father and mother or bear false witness against your neighbor, yes or no? See, crazy thing is, many believers actually don't pay attention to the moral demands of Scripture. Do we need the law? See, I was listening to Dr. L. Moeller quote Martin Luther on this matter. He said, early in the Reformation, Luther said, whatever you do, don't teach the law. And then, said Dr. Moeller, Luther had children. And then what did he do? Well, he wrote a child's catechism. And where does he begin? He wrote children. The law of God says the catechism for kids. Now, those of you who are kids will say, I know exactly what he means. So let's set some ground rules. First, where did we get the names Old Testament and New Testament? It turns out that those names are not found in the Bible. In fact, it was a theologian by the name of Origen, a man who lived in the early 200s, that gave us that title. In fact, this man has been noted throughout history for his very bad habits of doing Bible studies. Eventually, he was excommunicated from the church for a number of heretical beliefs, and also he was the father of the allegorical method of Bible interpretation rather than taking the text literally for what it says. Now, he's the one who gave us the name Old Testament for the first 39 books of our Bible, and that title, well, it's just stuck. We've used it to this day. And with that has come the idea, an idea not shared either by Jesus or the apostles. You see, for many Christians, old means outdated. You see, if I have an old computer and a new computer, which one am I going to use? Well, you get the idea. Old is gone, yesterday's technology, only interesting if you're pursuing a history of the development of computers, not important if you just want to use a computer. Same thing for many Christians. Old Testament is important for theologians and so forth, not important if you just want to follow Jesus, and certainly not important at Christmas time when, for many, we end the Old Testament account and start with the New Testament. And with this has come a confusion. For many believers, Old Testament, that is, the first 39 books, means Old Covenant, Doctrine of Works, and New Testament means New Covenant and the Doctrine of Grace. And with this has come the notion that the Christian Bible is made up of 27 books and not 66. So let's stop and consider why the First Testament is so valuable. You know, first, do you know that the New Testament, or the Final Testament, quotes the Old Testament 300 times. You know, sometimes that's not easily seen. Unlike modern books that have a footnote at the bottom of a page whenever they make a quote, in the ancient world, you simply quoted it. I mean, consider, for example, the first new or final testament book, 
Matthew. Its first 17 verses, often read at Christmas, is not a quote, but a detailed analysis of Old Testament genealogies. Then just six verses later, it comes with the first quote, Isaiah 7, verse 14, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And then just eight verses later, the second quote taken from Micah 5, verse 2. And then a few verses later, quotes from Hosea 11, verse 1, and then Jeremiah 31, verse 15, and so it goes on and on. And here's what the New or Final Testament, or the last 27 books in our Bible, are. In light of the fact that the long-awaited Christ has appeared into our fallen world. So these 27 books now tell us what the Old Testament actually means. See, without Christ... The Old Testament is hard to understand, but now that Christ has entered into the world, we got the key to interpreting the entire Bible. So we saw that the Final Testament quotes the First Testament over 300 times. Secondly, all the early church preachers preached from the Old Testament. I mean, have you ever wondered what the first Christian preachers preached? I mean, before we had the New Testament. Remember, the church began in A.D. 33, And the final testament was not completed until the early 90s, leaving about 60 years. And then in terms of collating all the books and placing them into one volume so that everyone could read them as one, well, that didn't happen until sometime later, about 300 years. So what did they preach? Did you know that the New Testament book of Hebrews was probably not a letter like Romans or 1 Corinthians or 1 Peter? Hebrews is probably a sermon. And what a sermon it was. It quotes the Old Testament somewhere around 37 times in 13 chapters. See, in the light of Christ, it shows us what the Old Testament truly means. That's what the early church did. They read and reread the Old Testament in the light of Christ. And that's what we should do as well, especially when it comes to Christmas and explaining the full meaning of Christ entering into the world. With 2022 coming to a close, you may be making plans for 2023, vacations, birthdays, other events, but what about your time spent with God and His Word? It can be challenging to balance our personal devotions with the hustle and bustle of everyday life. But Back to the Bible Canada has a great solution. The 2023 scripture calendar, Freedom in Christ, is designed with stunning images, Bible verses for reflection, encouraging quotes from Dr. John Newfeld, and most important, a daily Bible reading plan to help you read through the Bible in one year. Perhaps that's your commitment for 2023. And the Freedom in Christ calendar is available to you for free. Now there's a limited number left, so call us and ask for your copy today. Call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I'm reading 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The First Testament rightly understood is the revelation of Jesus Christ before he actually came. 
The New Testament rightly explains how when Christ came, he fulfilled all that the First Testament taught. Let me then for a moment give you Christ's view of the Old Testament. In Matthew 5:18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, each small letter is inspired by God. In John 10, 35, he says, And Scripture, that is the first testament, cannot be broken. Indeed, Jesus did more. He not only affirmed the inspiration of the Old Testament, he affirmed the authenticity of the Old Testament. For instance, many modern Bible scholars argue that Moses did not write the first five books of the Bible, but eight times, eight times in the Gospels. Jesus affirmed that it was Moses who wrote the first five books of our Bible. Twice, he affirms that it was a literal Isaiah who wrote the entire book of Isaiah. Once, in Matthew 24, verse 15, he affirms that it was Daniel who wrote the actual book of Daniel, and so forth. Jesus had the highest possible view of the Old Testament and would have been at odds with modern critical scholarship. So as we enter into the Christmas season and pour over the first 39 books of our Bible, let me suggest three common mistakes that people make when they're reading the Old Testament. First, there are those who only think of the First Testament as the Hebrew Scripture. Listen, when Jesus came, it was not a new religion. It was the fulfillment of what the true faith for all peoples was always leading us to. All of Scripture is our Scripture. It was written for believers. The second mistake is thinking God is different in the First Testament. And I hear that all the time. In the Old Testament, people say God is harsh and cruel, drowning the earth with a flood, destroying nations and so forth. And in the New Testament, Jesus teaches us to forgive our enemies. The idea behind this is the idea of two different moralities, as if God has now changed his attitude or if we now worship a different God. Please notice several things. First, did you know that no one spoke and warned about hell more than Jesus? He threatened hell if we lust in our hearts and if we insult our brother. He called hell an unquenchable fire. Furthermore, there is no lack of mercy and love expressed in the Old Testament. Consider Lamentation 3, verse 22, where the prophet Jeremiah is standing among the ruins of the city of Jerusalem, and then he says, Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. And so if we're going to understand the Christmas account at all, we need to understand against a background of both wrath and mercy. God so loved the world. Yeah, the ruined, rebellious world that is subject to his judgment, he so loved that world that he sent his son into that world. Only reading the whole Bible will give us a proper understanding of Christmas. So we've discussed two mistakes when reading the first 39 books, thinking they're only the Jewish scripture and thinking that God is somehow different there. A third mistake is turning the first testament into a morality tale. I don't mean that there are no moral lessons to be found in the Old Testament, but how easy it is to make it sound like Aesop's fable or something like that. You know, dare to be a Daniel and face the giants in your life like David and be a friend to others like Jonathan was. And again, there are moral lessons in the Old Testament, but if that's all we see, we miss the key. Jesus said that the Old Testament was the story about himself. 
Anytime we read the First Testament without being led to Jesus, we read without understanding. And so it's Christmas. And we're going to concentrate on the first 39 books of our Bible. And as we do, I want us to remember two very important things as we read. First, please read the First Testament in the light of the entire story. See, contrary to popular belief, the Old Testament is not a collection of stories. It tells one story. And that's what's missing for so many of us. You know, people know about Abraham sacrificing Isaac and Joshua marching around the city of Jericho and Jonah being swallowed by a fish. But for them, that's all they get. They miss what's called the grand narrative. It's it's like reading a great novel and getting a few adventure scenes out of it, but missing the great story. But the Old Testament is one story, true story, not fiction, but fact. A story about God and a story about his world. It begins with creation leading to a fall and a rebellion into sin, leading to the promise of redemption, and finally the promise of a new creation. And along the way, there are surprising twists in the plot line and the giving of covenants and binding agreements between God and those whom he has chosen. That's a story that reminds us that everything is moving towards a climax. The prophet Habakkuk expressed it perfectly in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, he says. But the earth can never be filled with the glory of God until the king himself steps into this world. And so as we read the first 39 books, we should get a deepening and growing sense of expectation. But more so, we should approach Jesus in the manger and know exactly who it is that lies in that feeding trough outside of Bethlehem. And the second thing that we should remember is that the Bible, especially its first 39 books, is filled with patterns. And if you fail to see the patterns, you fail to understand the story. You know, it takes a bit to get into this. But with a bit of training, everyone can be helped to see patterns that emerge. Imagine for a moment that that you're looking at a painting, and with a bit of instruction, you're helped to see a pattern, a kind of brush stroke that the artist used in a number of places. After a while, you might discover something that was always there, but that you had never seen before. For instance, there's a pattern of what God does in various localities in which he repeats an action, adding detail to it with each repetition. For instance, consider a valley in Israel called the Plains of Megiddo. In 841 BC, recorded in 2 Kings 9, King Joram is assassinated and dies on the plains of Moab, and consequently, his entire family is executed, and the dynasty of Omri comes to an end in Israel. Megiddo marked the place where the end came. Now, fast forward 232 years later. The righteous king in Judah, Josiah, is there. He meets Pharaoh Necho in battle on the plains of Megiddo. He's defeated and killed, and with his death is the eventual death of Judah, and will come the destruction of Jerusalem. It means the end. Now fast forward to a future date when all the nations of the earth gather in battle on the plains of Megiddo, and this time it means not just the end of a dynasty or a nation or Jerusalem, This is the day of the reckoning of the entire earth. You see, there's a repeated pattern, a way in which God establishes his action that reaches a climax. Well, the Bible is full of that. And once we see it, we will see Christ in an instant. 
Abraham will sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, but God intervenes and provides a substitute lamb, and Jesus will be sacrificed on that very mountain and become our substitute lamb. Passover, a lamb was slain, and its blood provided a possibility that the angel of death would pass over all those who had blood applied to their door. Jesus would be slain at Passover, and his blood would remove the wrath of God from all those who had the blood of Christ applied to their lives. Moses was 40 days on the mountain of God. Jesus was 40 days in the desert preparing for his ministry. See, the patterns are everywhere abundant. So when we think about Christmas and about the great creator stepping into his creation for the sake of his glory, we might remember patterns. When we see Herod's rage against Jesus killing the children, we might remember that this place of tears is the very place where Rachel was buried and weeps for her children. We might also remember that Bethlehem is the place where Ruth came, a foreign woman, to seek refuge under the wings of the God of Israel, and that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and this is the place where the Magi came, foreigners, again, seeking the knowledge of the God of Israel and seeking refuge under his wings. See, indeed, reading the Christmas story in the light of the first 39 books of the Bible makes the Christmas story far more profound than we had ever imagined. And so like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, let's begin with Moses and go through the prophets and hear the story of the coming of Jesus. John, this is an exciting series for me and and maybe a different sort of slant for people because we're coming at Christmas from the Old Testament. And some people might think that's odd or they're going to miss out on something, but I don't think that's how you feel. Yeah, so let me say to everyone that's going to miss out on something, yeah, I'm not going to spend the time, as much time as you're used to with the wise men and the shepherds and so forth, but that doesn't mean this isn't a Christmas series. Because the wise men and the shepherds and, uh, you know, the birth of Jesus to a virgin, all of this takes so much meaning when we see it in context of what God has done from the beginning of time. Uh, There are so many Christmas carols that we have that remind us that it is this long anticipation, this expectation that the world lived in that God's chosen servant would come. And that's what I want to follow through in the entire reading of Scripture. So let's start with Genesis and let's read Christmas into all the Bible the way it was intended to do. And when we do that, I think our Christmas is going to be far more meaningful than we had ever imagined. Well, thanks so much, John. We look forward to our series, Christmas from the Beginning of Time, continuing again tomorrow. This is Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, I'm Dr. John Newfell from Back to the Bible Canada. We all know of promises that were made and not kept. At times, unforeseen circumstances arose, making it impossible to keep our word. And at other times, we may have made a promise that seemed caring and generous, but in the end, the promises fell to the ground. But God is not as we are, and he never speaks about the future without fulfilling his word down to the smallest detail. And Christmas is a remarkable story of the promise-keeping God. God promised that a Savior would come, one whose death on the cross would break the power of the curse of sin 
putting Satan's reign to an end. This Christmas, may we celebrate and marvel over our God, the one and only God who can always be trusted to remain faithful. I hope you find joy and peace this Christmas. Merry Christmas.